My text this Lord's Day is taken from Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. This Lord's Day, we come to the conclusion of the prophecy of Micah. And as we look back over this prophecy, we would simply note that this prophecy began on a most solemn note, wherein the Lord brought a covenant lawsuit against His people for falling away from the pure form of worship instituted by God. He brought a covenant lawsuit against them for their hypocrisy in going through the mere motions of worship while their heart was actually indifferent to the Lord. He brought a covenant lawsuit against them for their placing their own confidence in their wisdom and in their strength rather than placing their confidence and their faith in the invincible Lord, their God. And he brought a covenant lawsuit against them for not giving ear to the cry of the poor and the helpless, the needy in their midst. Israel and Judah, though united to Jehovah by a marriage covenant, had gone after other lovers in departing from a faithful, loving, righteous, yea, perfect husband. Consider just for a moment to illustrate the point of the relentless falling away of Israel and God's relentless love to bring them back into a relationship with Him one of communion with Him. Consider this just illustrated in the book of Judges very briefly. Turn with me to Judges chapter 2. And in verses 11 through 13, we see how Israel, after the death of Joshua, and the elders of that generation who served with Joshua, after they died, we find this particular scenario happening, happening repeatedly through the book of Judges, repeatedly through the monarchy, falling away, God sending upon them enemies to humble them, them crying out to the Lord, and God in His mercy in His faithfulness, restoring them again into covenant fellowship and communion with Him. In verses 11 through 13, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and surged Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Well, then we see how the Lord then delivered them into the hands of their enemies. Look at verses 14 and 15. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and He sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. And then the Lord raises up judges, delivers to, to deliver them from their enemies. In verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And then we see in verse 17, 
they forsook the Lord again. And yet they would not hearken unto the, their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not do so. This is a cycle that is continuously repeated throughout the Scriptures as it relates to Israel. But what I want to illustrate is not so much the sin of God's people that's evident to us. What I want to illustrate here is the mercy of our God in restoring us. The love that He has for His bride. This should be, again, the great encouragement to us through whatever we pass that God is a faithful God unto us. After reading of the repeated acts of spiritual adultery committed against the Lord throughout Israel's history, it's all that we can do to keep from crying out in righteous indignation, Lord, destroy such an unfaithful wife once and for all. Judge her. She's only shown contempt for your love which you've bestowed upon her. Why wilt thou continue to show Israel thy grace? But even as the words form in our minds, we are reminded that this is precisely the covenant love which the Lord Jesus Christ has for us, His bride, collectively and individually. The Lord will not forsake His own. If it were not, beloved, for the tender mercies of the Lord in restoring us time and time again, after we have wandered from Him in our desires, in our plans, forgetting Him, neglecting Him, ignoring Him, in our affections, in our words, and in our actions, where would any of us be? With the Apostle Paul, we must absolutely and certainly declare we are what we are by the grace of God. As we come to the close of this prophecy, we are again turned away from trusting in ourselves or trusting in anything that we might offer the Lord as the basis for our salvation or as the basis even for our sanctification. And we are brought to see that it is the covenant mercies of the Lord God alone. It is His righteousness and not ours alone upon which we stand, which will never fail us. All other ground that we might rest upon is simply like quicksand into which we will sink to utter destruction. Consider with me the following three main points in this concluding sermon from the prophecy of Micah. First of all, the promises of a restoring God. Second, the prayer of a faithful minister. And thirdly, the response of a thankful people. First of all, then, the promises of a restoring God. Consider with me Micah chapter 7, verses 11 through 13 and verses 15 through 17. These are the promises God makes to His people. In the day that thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. In that day also He shall come even to thee from Assyria and from the fortified cities and from the fortress even to the river and from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. And then, verses 15 through 17, According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded at all their might. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out 
of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee. The faithful remnant were encouraged in Micah chapter 7 verses 8 through 10 in our previous sermon not to fret themselves because of the multitude, not to follow them to do evil, not to be concerned because the, the evildoers, the wicked, seem to progress and succeed in all of their wicked plans. Don't fret yourself because of them. Don't let that be where your focus is. Rather, the Lord encourages His people to look to the Lord alone, to allow their hope to be firmly fixed upon Him. For even when the remnant seem to fall due to their reduced size or due to the poor hearing or reception of the truth, they must remember that the Lord will cause them to rise again and that the Lord will plead their cause for them. Even if no one else may plead their cause on the face of the earth, God will plead their cause for which they have suffered, for which they have died. Now, although Israel was soon to experience the travail of suffering or discipline from the Lord, the Lord here gives them reassuring promises of their future restoration. Promises like these have already been made to Israel in previous sections of Micah. And I won't belabor, therefore, the point. But I do want us to understand that when we see these promises of restoration, that we might look upon these promises of restoration in two ways, that they are to be distinguished in two different ways. First of all, as Israel was taught to live in hope of a future restoration in the last days. Here we see, for example, the fulfillment of Romans 11.26, when all Israel shall be saved. And that in, our, in the book of Micah, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, we see that promise of that restoration of all of Israel coming together in those last days, the time that the millennium will be established. When it says, Micah chapter 4, verse 6 and following, In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off, a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth, even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come. Even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. The key time indicator in this passage is in verse 6. In that day. In what day? Well, Chapter 4, verse 1, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. In the last days, this promise of the future restoration of Israel will be accomplished. But we also would look for a nearer historical fulfillment to the time in which Israel then lived as well. A time of restoration. A time when God would deliver them from their enemies. And this we see as well, that God did in fact deliver His people out of captivity. They were led into Babylonian captivity, into Assyrian captivity, but God would draw them and bring them back. A remnant of His people, of Israel and Judah, gather them back into the land. And this we find, for example, in Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Whereas in verses 6 through 8, which we just read, it says, in that day, and what we find there are uh, promises of a future, a far future type of restoration. In verse 9, the time indicator is now. 
It's in, it's in the, it's in the general present time. Now, why dost thou cry out aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now shalt thou go forth out of the city, that is, into captivity, and thou shalt dwell in the field, and thou shalt go even to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And so there is a, a, a nearer fulfillment of this restoration that God would bring upon his people. The language of restoration in this particular verse, um, Micah chapter 7, verse 11, is the language that involves rebuilding what has fallen into disrepair and returning to the territory granted to faithful forefathers. This we see both in Micah chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, actually. For the walls of Jerusalem that had been destroyed would be rebuilt and the remnant of Israel and of Judah would return from Assyria and all fortified cities where they were driven in order to reestablish the temple and its pure worship to God and to reestablish and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that day, the scripture says, the decree would be far from them. That is the decree of the Assyrians, the decree of the Babylonians, the decree of the Medes and the Persians that in any way hindered God's remnant from returning to their inheritance and rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. Those decrees, all of them would be removed far from God's people. Those decrees would lose their authority and their power over God's people because God would bring His people by His mighty outstretched arm out of captivity and back into their own land. Although for the time being, as it says in verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13, there would be desolation in the land for their unfaithfulness Nevertheless, God speaks of a future period in which He would bring about a wondrous deliverance similar to that of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. In verses 15 through 17, Micah chapter 7, there we see, for example, in verse 15, According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt will I show unto him marvelous things. The future deliverance God encourages His people that they could expect would be similar to the deliverance that they had when God brought them out of Egypt. The northern kingdom of Israel, you'll remember, had been led into captivity by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C. And their kingdom was demolished at that time. The southern kingdom of Judah likewise was led into captivity by the Babylonians in about 586 B.C. and their kingdom was destroyed just as their walls and the temple were destroyed. It appeared at this point in time, it appeared to the whole world, all of the nations looking on, Israel is destroyed. Judah is destroyed. She'll never recover or rise again. This is the fate that she has been assigned to forever. But the Lord here promises to His people that they would rise again and be restored to their land and they would rebuild Jerusalem and the temple of the living God. Just as He says, if you want to look up a very clear passage which points to this restoration of both Israel and Judah to Jeremiah chapter 50, verses 1 through 5. Then to the utter amazement of the nations of the world, God raised up the seeming dead and lifeless corpse, yea, even the dry bones of Israel and Judah, 
and they started clinging, clanking against one another. Movement amongst the dry bones of Israel. God brought them together and put sinew upon them, brought them together and put flesh upon them. They stood up like a mighty army. And they returned to the land of their inheritance. That nation that appeared to be totally dead, a lifeless corpse, God restored, resurrected, and brought to their land, which He will do again in the future, according to the prophecies that we find even in the New Testament. Primarily Romans chapter 11. This was first accomplished in the reign of Cyrus, as we read in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that the Spirit of God raised up King Cyrus and put within him the desire to restore God's people to their own land and gave them the resources to build the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. A heathen king, a pagan king, God puts within him the desire to send God's people back to Jerusalem and to rebuild that demolished city and that temple that lays in ruins. You see, again, we learn that that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God turns the monarchs. God turns the princes. God turns the king, the president, the prime minister in directions that he wills. Uh, The world, dear ones, as sad of a state as it is in, is not in the hands, ultimately, of the wicked. It is in the hands of the Lord. God is directing all things to His own design. We are certainly brought to that truth as we consider what God did in raising up Cyrus. The nations that had led Israel into captivity, according to our text here, and as we see in history as well fulfilled, these nations were brought from the height of their glory and power to lick the dust of the ground in their defeat. God brought them to utter destruction and defeat themselves. Even as the fear of the Lord fell upon Egypt and all the surrounding nations, as they heard of God's power, in smashing the Egyptians and in delivering Israel. So the fear of the Lord likewise fell upon the nations of the world as they saw Assyria and as they saw Babylon fall. And Israel, that once conquered nation, Israel returned to her land to rebuild her city and the temple of the living God. As we see prophesied in Micah 7, Verse 17. Beloved, the promises of restoration made here to Israel as a nation are likewise made to God's remnant individually and collectively today. I would have you reflect upon the fact that God continues through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to restore us, His people, individually. I'm caused to reflect upon and to think upon how God restored Peter. Peter denied the Lord three times. Peter wanted to go fishing in John chapter 21 to get as far away it would appear from dealing with certain issues that were weighing very heavily upon his mind. He wanted to go fishing. The Lord met Peter there while Peter was fishing. And in the course of John chapter 21, the Lord finally brings Peter to the point where Peter hasn't raised the whole issue with regard to his own restoration, having fallen into sin so desperately, having turned his back at that point upon God, upon Christ, The Lord confronts him three times with that question. Lovest thou me more than these? Corresponding to the three times that Peter had denied the Lord, the Lord confronts him with his sin. 
But then he commissions him and says, go and feed my sheep. Doesn't leave him to, to collect dust on the shelf because he had fallen and fallen so greatly. Peter wanted to be reconciled to the Lord. God brought Peter to the place where the Lord reaches out to Peter and confronts him with the sin but restores him back into communion and fellowship and prepares a meal for him on the beach there to indicate we're in communion. The Lord sent Peter forth. Dear ones, I would encourage you this day regardless of what you have passed through, regardless of how you may believe you have failed the Lord, the Lord Jesus is coming to you and He calls from the shore. He calls you by name. And He would be restored to you and He would restore you unto Himself. He invites you to come and to avail yourself of the mercy and grace because He delights in mercy. You don't have to force God to be merciful. You don't have to push and to prod God to be merciful. God, as to His nature, is merciful. He delights in showing mercy. And so, individually, the Lord continues to restore His people. In Revelation 3.20, the Lord restores His people collectively when they have fallen away, as in the church of Laodicea a church that was living in abject hypocrisy before God. And yet the Lord Jesus comes to them, still pleading with them. And He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear My voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with Me. And so we see that the Lord as well collectively comes to His church. He comes to our church when we have fallen away in various ways to restore us unto Himself, to speak unto our hearts, to give us a broken and contrite heart. May God help us to heed the invitations of grace that He brings to us as well as to His church at large, the visible church that is spread throughout the world God will restore His church unto Himself in all purity and doctrine and worship and in government. This is our great hope that our God issues promises of restoration and He will not fail to keep them. The second main point in the sermon this Lord's Day is the prayer of a faithful minister. Consider with me what is said in Micah chapter 7, verse 14. Feed thy people with thy rod. The flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. Here we see, dear ones, the heart of a faithful minister. As the prophet Micah pleads with the Lord on behalf of Israel, God is likened to a shepherd and his people are likened here to sheep. And a faithful minister is an under-shepherd of the Lord God. He is one who continually pleads with God in prayer that the Lord would lead his flock into the paths of righteousness and truth. That the Lord would protect and defend his people from all their enemies outside and within the church who would seek to mislead and divide and scatter the flock, whether they be false teachers, whether those enemies be corrupt worship, false doctrine, comfortable and secure lives that will not stand for Christ, hypocrisy in going through the mere motions of faith, pride, anger, bitterness, lust, love of money, the applause of man, Trusting in the arm of flesh, little or no love for the needs of brethren, promoting dissension and division within the church of Christ. Whatever that enemy may be, dear ones, the Lord, 
through his faithful ministers, calls his ministers to pray that God would defend and protect his people. A faithful minister, beloved, understands that the only hope for the church of Jesus Christ is not in himself. It's not in his gifts or in his abilities. It's not in the gifts or abilities of the members of the congregation, but their only hope is in Christ alone. Thus, the faithful minister is brought to realize his own insufficiency. Every day, his utter dependence, his absolute dependence upon the Lord God alone. And with a heavy heart, he bears the burdens of God's people individually and collectively to the Lord. The primary tasks of a faithful minister are summarized under these two heads in Acts 6.4. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The minister who is a stranger to prayer before the Lord God on behalf of himself and on behalf of his people, regardless of how pure his doctrine is, his worship and his church government, is, an un- is unfaithful to his calling as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's unfaithful. Such a heart, dear ones, for prayer in a minister implies that he loves the flock of Christ that has been entrusted unto him and that he must, therefore, if he is to carry their burdens to God in prayer, he must become acquainted with them. He must know them. He must be aware of their needs, even from the youngest to the oldest, if he would be able to pray for them. In Micah 7.14, the prophet prays that God would feed His people. It's interesting, it says, feed His people with His rod. The shepherd's rod served primarily two purposes in ancient times. First of all, to defend the sheep against enemies. And second, to discipline the sheep when they strayed. Note that the use of the rod in either defending or disciplining the flock is an aspect of feeding, it says here. Feed thy people with the rod. We would not normally associate using the rod with caring for and feeding God's people, but that is what the Scripture says here. For in defending the sheep from their enemies and in disciplining the sheep to follow the good shepherd... The shepherd is promoting their feeding. He's promoting their growth. He's promoting their welfare. This implies that the rod is not an instrument of vengeance and hatred. But to the contrary, it's an instrument of love and ought always to be used in love when administered to the sheep and in the family administered to our children. How, therefore, we should learn, dear ones, to kiss the rod rather than to despise the rod in our lives. Whether it come in the form of trials from God or afflictions, whether it come in the form of instruction or correction from parents or church officers, how we ought to learn rather than becoming defensive, obstinate, unbelieving how we ought to kiss the rod because it is the means by which God feeds us, cares for us, demonstrates that He loves us. In fact, those who despise the rod will not be fed, but will indeed starve and bring about their own destruction as we find in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 10. Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. We hate the rod of reproof and correction. We'll not be fed. We'll starve to death. We'll die. See, this also implies that one of the primary uses of the rod in the ministry of the church is directed against the various 
heresies and errors of the age that would attack the flock of Jesus Christ, not only to keep them from straying, but also to defend them against their enemies. It is not an unfaithful ministry that preaches against error, whether it is embraced by the world or whether it's embraced by various sections of the church. But rather, and to the contrary, it is a faithful ministry. It is one that is using the rod as God has ordained to feed the flock to point out the errors and sins of the time in which we live. One last point that I see under this second main point is this, that though the flock is scattered in solitary places, lonely places, isolated places, the faithful minister cares for even those sheep and prays for them as he does for those whom he sees every Lord's day. The faithful minister prays that these who are scattered might be brought to feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old, which places were known to be excellent grazing places for cattle and to feed sheep. Here, dear ones, we are called to love, correspond with, care for, and pray for our brethren who meet for worship by themselves in solitary places every Lord's Day. Here, the faithful minister Faithful elders, faithful church officers are called to show their concern and to serve Christ's sheep in places where a faithful church does not exist so that they might feed on all the ordinances of Christ. And I would simply say that although our load as shepherds of the sheep may become great, because we have members in many places that are isolated from us today. We cannot ignore nor neglect those sheep which dwell solitarily in the wood, for that is for whom Micah the prophet of God prays, for those who are solitary in isolated places. You see, dear ones, such sacrifices that we would make God will reward yes we must make sacrifices as elders because our time is limited when we have so many sheep in isolated places it doesn't mean that we only have this flock to which that we are to uh, exercise care for there are sheep in other areas as well lonely desolate places God has given to us that we're to shepherd and to feed and to care for. It means that you will make sacrifices as well. That you won't perhaps see as much of us as you might like to see of us. But God has given to us these sheep as well. You see, in a ministry like this, it calls for sacrifices from all of us, doesn't it? Not just on the part of the minister or the elder, but on the part of the whole congregation to see the truth of God go forward, to love these brethren as well. It calls us to be willing to sacrifice ourselves for others. The final main point this Lord's Day is this, the response of a thankful people. Chapter 7 verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Beloved, the response of a people who have heard of the mighty deliverance 
God has wrought in times gone by, of the wondrous restoration of God in bringing his people back to himself time and time again when they have wandered away, the response of God's people who have not only heard, but they have seen in their own lives and witnessed God's amazing deliverance from sin and from enemies in their own life, and have seen the wondrous grace of God manifested in the lives of themselves and their children. Such deliverances, such restoration calls for the response of a thankful people to show the praise and wonders, to declare the wonders of the Lord their God. And this is the expression that falls from the lips of those who know and experience, who have heard of and know of God's deliverance and restoration. There is none like unto our God. There is none who is like unto thee. See, the people of God who were miraculously delivered from the pursuing Egyptians and were shown mercy after mercy, sang with Moses at the banks of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 15, verses 9 through 13, these words. They said, The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out Thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. See, that same phrase, after God's deliverance, that same phrase falls from the lips of God's people. Who is a God like unto thee? See, they're so overcome, so overwhelmed with the mercies of God that all that can be said is, who is a God like unto thee? One of the essential characteristics, dear ones, of the true Christian religion, which is missing from all false religion, is the characteristic of saving grace to undeserving sinners. That will not be found in any other religion. Only in Christianity do you find those who do not merit, who do not earn, who do not deserve, the ungodly, the helpless, those who have gone a-whoring, only those. Only in Christianity will you find God's grace and mercy shown to those. It's one of the signs, one of the indications that this is the true religion, that God is alone the true and living God. Satan can't imitate that. Satan cannot counterfeit that with all of his false religion in the world. Only God saves and redeems those who utterly deserve his wrath and eternal condemnation. You see, Baal worshippers believed the wrath of Baal could be appeased with the sacrifice of their children. The Romanists believed that the angry Jesus may be appeased and forgiveness obtained if the penitent man is willing to make various sacrifices in his life to secure that forgiveness. But only biblical Christianity declares the free and full pardon of sin by an offended God through the work of a mediator, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Only biblical Christianity proclaims to all who will come and embrace Jesus Christ by faith alone, without works, apart from works, a full 
pardon. And not only a full pardon of their sin, but even imputed the glorious righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Christianity, the biblical Christianity, offers those gifts. Only our God, the living and true God, is a God of grace and mercy. Why does the Lord pardon iniquity? pass by our transgressions and retain not his anger against us forever, according to the text in Micah 7.18, because he delighteth in mercy. Dear ones, you need never wonder whether God will willing to forgive you, but rather whether he will be delighting in forgiving you. He delights in mercy. No matter how many times you have sinned and committed the same sin, if you come sincere faith, simply laying hold of Christ, the Lord will forgive. And He will remember that sin against you no more. If you come sincerely leaning upon the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking forgiveness through Christ, you'll only and always, without exception, find the Lord God delighting in showing you mercy. You'll never have to feel like this is a kind of game of tug, tug of war where you have to pull the mercy from God. Or you have to perform enough in order to obtain God's mercy. God says, come to me with a broken and contrite heart. Sincerity and simply pleading for Christ's forgiveness. Lay it all before the Lord and he will cast it into the depths of the sea. Verses 19 and 20. Why does the Lord turn again and again to to us one fall after another why does he have compassion upon us even when we are overcome by our enemies the devil the world and the flesh why does he continue his gracious work of subduing and sanctifying us why does he cast all our sins into the depths of the sea because verse 20 says he will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which he has sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. You see, dear ones, the Lord will be faithful to the covenants he has made with his people. Although you, you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ may fail him, may forsake him, you may turn from him as your first love, and seek after other loves and gratify the flesh. Yet God the Father has made a covenant with God the Son from all eternity to redeem, to justify, to adopt, to sanctify, and to glorify all of His people. And no power in heaven or in hell or on earth can break that covenant or keep that covenant from being fulfilled. Christ came and with His blood He ratified that covenant. We do not sin that grace may abound, but dear ones, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. The forgiveness of the Lord is highlighted by Micah here in this phrase. Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. In verse 19. It's kind of a picture. Just as the enemies of God, the Egyptians, were cast into the depths of the sea and buried there, so the Lord buries all, not some, but all of our sins as our enemies against us. He buries them in the depths of grace and mercy forever buried. Now, this being the case, the question might arise, why do we need to continue to seek God's forgiveness throughout the Christian life? 
If in fact God has once and for all forgiven us, pardoned all of our sins. Well, let me simply say that all our sins, past, present, and future, are once and for all forgiven by God as judge. When we are justified by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, once and for all, all of those sins judicially are forgiven. God will not hold those sins against us ever. That is the, what is bestowed upon us is the grace within justification. However, we are to continue to seek the forgiveness of God as our Father, not as our judge, but as our Father in order to enjoy blessed communion with God. If we would know the joy of the Lord, if we would know assurance of salvation, if we would know all the blessings that God has given to us, God will continue to direct us to confess our sins to Him as Father. But those sins will not, that He has as judge forgiven us for, will not condemn us any longer. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're no longer under the condemnation of God as a judge. However, we are under the discipline of God as a father. If, dear ones, we have been forgiven so much, how can we refuse to forgive those who sin against us? Within our own home? Within the church? Even the non-Christian? who lives next door to us, how can we refuse to forgive those who have sinned against us? And even if they don't come to seek forgiveness, how can we refuse to be willing to forgive them? To anticipate and hope that they will come, that we might have that relationship restored. And God, through Christ, has forgiven us so very much and cast all of our sin into the depths of the sea. You see, there's not a greater demonstration of hypocrisy in our lives than when we receive the forgiveness of God and refuse to forgive others. Hypocrisy doesn't rise any higher than that. Nor does an unthankful heart rise any higher than that. In conclusion, dear ones, what have we learned through our study, by way of practical use, what have we learned from our study through the prophecy of Micah? Let me give you, very briefly, seven practical uses to focus upon, to dwell upon, to reflect upon, and meditate upon. First of all, Trust not in man or in the resources of man, but rather trust wholly in the Lord Almighty. That in whom you trust is who in whom you hope your joy will come from. You say, I don't, I don't sense any joy in my life. Where is the joy of the Lord? Well, I ask, who are you trusting in? Day by day, moment by moment. In whom is your trust? Because in whatever your trust is in, that you will derive your joy from. Where is peace and contentment? Well, I direct you again to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Second of all, follow not the multitude to do evil. Where is the righteous man, Micah Christ? He's perished from the face of the earth when the wicked arise and seem to engulf. When everything we see in the media propounds a worldly perspective. Will we follow the multitude to think what is evil, to speak what is evil, to watch what is evil, to practice what is evil? Or will we follow the righteous God? Will we follow His truth and His righteousness in the path we walk? Thirdly, fret not thyself because of the success of evildoers. Who are we comparing ourselves to when we measure what God is doing in the world today? Are we comparing ourselves to the so-called or apparent success of the wicked? 
to the apparent success of the ungodly, to the apparent success of unfaithful uh, churches. We can look to Rome and see all kinds of success, at least from a worldly perspective. But you see, success is not measured in those terms. Success is measured by a way of faithfulness to God. And so, let us not be afraid because we see, as it were, the enemies of God being so successful. God will have his time. He will bring about a reckoning. Let us simply be faithful. He will use even those of us who are very weak and frail, if we're faithful, to accomplish his purposes. Fourthly, Turn from all hypocrisy in faith or life. Dear ones, God hates hypocrisy. God despises hypocrisy. God calls us to be sincere and truthful. Even in our sin, to sincerely repent and turn to the Lord. There is an expression, not of hypocrisy, But when we sincerely turn to the Lord, confessing our sin broken before Him, pleading for His mercy, which is so abundant and free, that is sincerity of religion and faith. Pray that God would show us, dear ones, inconsistencies in our life where we profess one thing and practice another that goes along with hypocrisy. God, help us to be consistent and faithful in our testimony in word and practice. Fifthly, we learn from the prophecy of Micah, don't expect a comfortable life if you're walking in faithfulness to Christ. To expect that we will have comfort and ease in this life when we're living in the time of great apostasy is to expect what God has not promised. Yes, God can bestow, even in times of apostasy, blessings. As we see during the various periods of the Second Reformation in England, Ireland, and Scotland, where there was great blessings poured out for a brief period of time upon God's people. But dear ones, When we are living as Christ has called us to live, not trying to stir up trouble, not attempting to set stumbling blocks before people, but simply desiring to be faithful to Christ, don't expect to have a comfortable lifestyle. Sixthly, don't despise the least measure of grace bestowed upon you. But rather, dear ones, be thankful for all the mercies of the Lord. Consider every day. Reflect upon every day. Think upon the things that you have to be thankful. So as to give glory to God. You see, dear ones, from a thankful heart utters true, sincere praise to God and profitable encouragement to the brethren. From a thankful heart does not flow forth a sinful criticism, an extreme criticism, but rather a bearing of the burdens of others. Yes, it will go with with a heavy heart at times and correct where it's needed. But dear ones, Let us be thankful for the mercy and the grace which God has bestowed upon us and not take for granted even the least blessing. And lastly, don't fail to heed the invitation of Christ when He calls us unto Himself for who is a God like our God who pardons all our sins, who casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. When you hear those invitations, those promises that God will offer to you, 
this grace. Do not lightly esteem the invitations of Christ's children. Adults, do not consider it to be just something you've heard a thousand times and and to, to just let it pass through your ears. There's perhaps not a greater sin than that. To not avail yourself of the mercy of God when it is so freely and fully offered to you. No doubt those who will suffer the greatest in hell will not be those heathen who have never heard the gospel. But those who will suffer the greatest torment in hell will be those who have been freely offered full pardon of all of their sin and have steadfastly turned a deaf ear to those invitations of grace and mercy. Come unto the Lord this day, dear ones. Receive of His mercy. Let us stand in prayer. O Lord our God, who is a God like unto Thee, so full of grace and love, who delights in mercy, who delights to cover and to bury our sin. O Lord our God, we praise Thee. We exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We praise Thee for His faithfulness in fulfilling the terms of the covenant of redemption. We thank Thee, our God, for for giving to us through the covenant of grace, faith, for in and in the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, we pray that Thou would cause us this day to sing forth with the children of Israel as we contemplate the mighty deliverances which Thou hast wrought in our lives as we consider and reflect upon how Thou hast continually restored us unto Thyself. O Lord, let us sing Thy praises. Who is a God like unto our God? We pray, our Father, that Thou would cause the truths which Thou hast opened up to us by Thy Word and Spirit through this prophecy of Micah to burn in our hearts to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us every day. We ask, Lord, these things, trusting not in ourselves, but looking only to our Savior. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.